one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Good morning, Jim. Great to see you again. Uh, we have, at the end of uh, an incredible week, actually, of news flow from so many different sources, a smorgasbord of choices to, to speak about. We're not going to get through all of them. I suspect a lot of these topics could uh, merit a podcast in their own right. Almost out of badness, I was going to say fun, but it's probably badness. I think we should speak about RTE and think about the, the way in which how public sector pay is determined. Let's put it in that po-faced way. I'm always interested in broader questions of governance when these sorts of things come up, and we may get a chance to talk about that. There's been quite a bit of economic data of one kind or another this week. Some of it's second rank. Uh, for example, we've had some UK GDP and house price data this morning. And I know there's a couple of other bits and pieces that you want to talk about as well. We've had the ESRI come out with a, a very interesting report and warning the government not to cut taxes. And I think you're going to tell us why the government is going to cut taxes, but I'll leave that up to you. If we've got time, there's been some fantastic articles across various publications this week that I'd like to draw listeners' attention to and discuss some of the implications. A terrific article by Gillian Tett, who's a, a managing editor at the FT, about Biden Bidenomics as the really the antithesis of Reaganomics and why we need to pay more attention to it. This is a theme to which we've been speaking for ages now about how uh, here in Europe people aren't paying enough attention to the way in which Biden is remaking the US and therefore world economies. And if we get a chance, I want to talk a little bit about that. And there's a couple of other articles as well. And also to, to reference Biden's now continuous references to supporting the war in Iraq leads me to think that uh, we have a building problem 
uh, not with his economics, but with his continued gaffes. And uh, the implications of that, I think, could be quite disturbing or certainly interesting. Anyway, Jim, over to you. Lots of things going on domestically in Ireland, not least that ESRI report and the build-up to the budget, and also, um, dare I say, uh, the goings-on at RTE. Where do you want to start, mate? I'll just start with the ESRI. Over the last few weeks, Chris, um, a number of sort of official forecasting agencies here, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which was an independent body set up uh, to act as a sort of a watchdog on the fiscal management of the Irish economy by government, the central bank, and now the ESRI have all come out basically suggesting that the Irish economy is an economy operating at full capacity and that tax cuts in this environment would not be the appropriate way to go. So I'll just talk about the ESRI. Um, I mean, it, it's it's its summer economic fork, summer economic commentary calls it. I always read it. I always think it's good stuff. Agree, disagree. There's good analysis in there. It basically assesses the Irish economy by saying that the economic headwinds like rising interest rates, slower than expected global trade and persistent inflation are clouding the international outlook. But the domestic economy here is still growing robustly. But it does warn about the emergence of capacity constraints um, in the labour and housing markets in particular and warning that these capacity constraints will have implications for future growth. Um, Interesting, um, it alludes to something that I have spoken about the last few months and, and I'm not suggesting for one moment the ESRI would have taken my lead on this, but I've been watching closely for month to month what's happening on the export side here. And in the first four months of the year, we got data last week showing that overall merchandise exports are down by 5.2%. And within that, exports to the United States down by 22.7%. And the exports of chemical and pharmaceutical products to the US down by 27.1%. So there is something sort of technical going on here in the sense that during the pandemic, there was a massive ramping up of the chemical and pharma production and exports. Um, I think we're now starting to normalize. But I, I guess the key point is that this is going to have a significant impact on the measure of economic growth here, which is gross domestic product. And indeed, the ESRI is saying that GDP this year will increase by just 0.1% and by 3.5% in 2024. Okay, but then it turns around and says, but on the other hand, pardon the pun, modified domestic demand, which measures really what's happening, domestic demand in the economy, you know, business investment, government expenditure and consumer expenditure, Uh, What's happening there? Well, it's projecting modified domestic demand growing by three and a half percent this year and by four percent next year. So here we're back again to the anomalies, the difficulties in measuring economic activity. And I I think for listeners um, who are not aware of it, I think it's worth pointing them in the direction of a paper that was published this week by Kevin Timoney in the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council trying to sort of deconstruct Irish economic activity. I haven't read it fully yet, but I've I've looked at the the headlines and it looks like a very good piece of research helping people understand just exactly the 
difficulties in interpreting and measuring Irish economic activity. But that's the ESRI's prognosis for the economy. But I guess the more interesting part is the advice that it gives to government ahead of the budget in October. And it's basically saying there is no rationale for tax cuts. Okay. Uh, Last night, Michael McGrath, the Minister for Finance, was speaking at an event and he sort of said that, you know, he's taking on board all of this advice he's getting from IFACT, Central Bank, the ESRI, uh, but says that, you know, government basically has a broader remit than just controlling inflation and overheating in the economy. And basically, they have to consider, you know, what the citizens of the country want and so on. So he's basically saying that there will be some reduction in the tax burden in the budget. And I think where this is going to come is through an indexation of tax credits and tax bans. Because if you do not index those credits and bans for inflation, well, then um, by stealth, we all end up paying higher taxes. Okay, so he's basically saying he's going to do that. And I just thought it was interesting. Perhaps I've missed it. Don't watch it that closely. But he did allude to conversations he's been having with multinational companies who admit, you know, are, are fully aware of just how progressive Irish, the Irish income tax system is. But they're saying to him that the burden of tax is high at a relatively low level of income. So basically, these people are saying to Michael McGrath, in terms of our staff and our ability to attract staff into this country, uh, the personal tax burden really has to be looked at and continually looked at. So that's where Michael McGrath is coming from. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll find out in early October. Uh, but the, the overheating issue is an interesting one. Um, we, we have virtually a fully employed economy, a 3.8% unemployment rate, just over 2.6 million people working the economy. So that's as tight as this labor market ever has been. And a lot of the jobs that are being created are now being filled by inward migration into the country, which, of course, poses all sorts of challenges for housing supply as well and, and the rental market particularly. Lots of interesting stuff, but I was, I was just looking at the consumer dynamic in the economy, which is incredibly important. Before you do that, and I think it's very important that we do look at the consumer because they are two thirds of the economy. I just want to go back to that tax point that you just raised while I think of it. And that is that uh, I'll reference, first of all, one of those articles that I mentioned earlier on. There's a great one in the FT by a guy called Adam Tooze, who is also, like Julian Tett, a contributing editor to the FT. And he talks about this continued push to get inflation back down to target uh, around the world, looks at what the ECB is doing, what Bank of England is doing, what the Federal Reserve is doing, and coming to the conclusion that we're all coming to is that interest rates are going to go up further in most, if not all, of those jurisdictions. And it's a higher for longer story because we need to get inflation down. Similarly, people are shouting at the Irish finance minister about Irish inflation. We need to get it down. And Tooze raises a very interesting question, asks a very interesting question, is have not all of these think tanks like the ESRI, the elites in general in the developed world, not learned anything from the last 15 years? For God's sake, you're just repeating all the old mistakes of the past in that getting inflation down 
will crush certain sectors of our economy, if not our whole economy, in ways that will just fuel the populist flames again. Have you learned nothing from the last 15 years? I think it's a, a great, great question. Because although Tooze doesn't say this explicitly, it speaks to a particular theme of mine, which is that one of the things that Bidenomics and running your economy hot wherever you choose to do that, not in Europe at the moment, it has to be said, but one of the consequences in the United States of Bidenomics, you wouldn't know it listening to various talking heads around the place, but inequality in the United States is falling very rapidly, Jim. Yeah. And that's what happens when you run a hot economy. That's when you run a hot labor market. When you have shortages of labor, guess what? People's wages go up. Great. And the the problems that have led to Trumpism and Brexit were caused in a considerable part, not only by inequality, by people being left behind. And we, we now have in the UK a department of leveling up, which is explicitly about... Uh, doing away with inequality. And the easiest and simplest way of doing away with inequality is by paying poorer people more. And therefore, you need to run a tight labour market. Which brings me back specifically to your point about the lobbying of Michael McGrath to reduce taxes because they need to get uh, incomes for these workers up. I would say to those employers, if I was Michael McGrath, pay your workers more. Leave my office now. And if I was Michael McGar, I would be actually using all of the available fiscal space to improve the country's infrastructure. If there's anything to be done to the tax system in Ireland, it's to simplify it. I mean, you can live with the current... And I agree, yes, internationally, there are bits of the Irish tax system that quite clearly are quite penal. And uh, over time, you can do something about that. But the, the overriding priority for the Irish tax system is simplicity, because let me tell you, Jim, nobody understands it. And the overriding priority for the country is the country's infrastructure, not personal taxes. They're both priorities, but but once one, you have to prioritise. Chris, it's not a question of either or. I mean, one of the problems with the Irish income tax system is the fact that at forty thousand, you go on the top rate of tax. And last year, a significant move was made to increase that. But I, I think that should be the focus of tax reform here over the coming years, just gradually lifting that ceiling. And in fact, I would like to see a third rate of tax being introduced to make the the, the increase in the tax burden more gradual. But I anybody could not disagree with what you're saying about the need for infrastructure investment. Um, you know, the, the Metro North in Dublin should be a national priority at this stage because every time I come into Dublin Airport, you despair at the difficulty in getting into the city centre or wherever you want to go. Um, We're one of the few airports in the world I'm aware that doesn't have a rail linkage. Most airports uh, you come into, I was in Schiphol in Amsterdam recently, you know, you hop straight on the train. Berlin, likewise, you can basically nearly walk off the plane and straight into a train. So, yeah, I, I agree totally on the infrastructure front. But we are not good as a country at delivering infrastructure. We'll get better. Exactly. But what makes us get better, Chris? But Have you ever gotten the, the subway from JFK? I have. I, I never have because I've never been able to figure out where it goes. <laughs> anyway. I remember, I remember, Chris, back in the day when I worked in Bank of Ireland, if you flew first class on Aer Lingus, when you got to JFK, you had the choice of being picked up by a car 
are getting the helicopter up to Manhattan. And uh, sure? was that RTE or Bank of Ireland you were working? That was Bank of Ireland, Chris. Oh, sorry, sorry, Tim. Carry on. <laughs> Those were the days. Indeed, indeed. I don't. I'm not sure that you won't be hauled up before the Public Accounts Committee if you if you keep going on like that. This is a private company, Chris. Bank of Ireland. Well, it was in state ownership for a while, Tim. Not back then, Chris. Okay, this, well, this, maybe, maybe it should have been. This was in the 1990s, okay, when everything was great. I get your point, Chris, but there was an interesting piece by um, Noah Smith, our friend who's contributed to this podcast a few times from San Francisco. He was talking about the vibe recession. He was specifically, I guess, talking about the United States, but something we've discussed on this podcast a number of times, that the official forecasts, and sentiment about the future have been dire for the last 12 months, but yet those dire predictions have not materialized in terms of a significant downturn in global economic activity. And I guess specifically in the States, you know, growth has certainly surprised on the upside. Yesterday, we saw first quarter growth revised up from 1.3 to 2%. And given the sort of monetary tightening the States has seen, uh, that's a pretty decent performance and the labour market is very tight, but yet people feeling very negative. And he attributed it to basically the fact that real wages have been declining. So what, there's two ways of addressing that. You know, One is to get inflation down and that that is a policy priority. It's happening. But the second is basically for employers to pay higher wages. But it's not either or. It's a combination of both, in my view. Yeah, I understand that, and I think that's perfectly legitimate. Uh, we we all. But you don't uh, agree. Well, it's about priorities. I, I I look at Ireland, you know, from the outside now, um, and think, well, yes, reducing the burden of tax for me, simplifying the tax system would be a priority. It's, it wouldn't be everybody's, and so politicians are there to make these kinds of choices. Politicians are there to list out the priorities and explain what they think they should be. Listen to the electorate in terms of what uh, the citizens of the country think, and then make choices. That's about governing and governance. Chris, can I ask you, what do you mean? What would you simplify? If you looked at the Irish tax code, if, 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 if you published it in a single book, I think they do do. It Tom, would, it, Tom McGuire and Delight does it, yeah. Yeah, it looks that, like that. Was that the launch of a couple of them recently? For readers not looking at this on YouTube, and there's a very good reason why they're not looking at this on YouTube, because we don't publish on YouTube. It's a podcast, not a video cast. I'm, I'm making the sign of a book about a foot deep, just for effect. The, the Irish tax code should be a few pages, not a few thousand pages. And that's true of many different countries. I mean, it's even worse here in the UK, actually. The complexities of the tax code now defeat even our equivalent of the revenue commissioners. They're in total disarray. The, our equivalent of the revenue commissioners now don't even answer the phone if you've got a query. And if you write to them, they're taking over a year to get back. And uh, that's partly a resourcing issue, but it's partly also a complexity issue. These, I, neither country has a tax system that if you had a blank sheet of paper, you would design. You wouldn't design what we've got. The way in which the tax and welfare systems interact with each other to produce welfare traps the list of things that uh, go wrong are endless and the list of co unnecessary complexity that simply confuses people um, is, is too long. And I think that people would pay more tax, actually, if they understood the system better than they do. Uh, and, and we would have a less costly system, uh, a more efficient system. And I'm just always in favor of efficiency. So I think that the complexity of the tax system is one of the smaller economic problems yeah. that we've got. But I do think that in this era of 
trying to explain where the biggest priority for me my own personal political choice uh, is would be to address all of the resources that you've got at improving the country's infrastructure. And I see Rishi Shunak has just announced a plan to significantly increase the number of doctors and nurses in the NHS over the next uh, 12 years. If you talk to any people working in the NHS at the moment, any of the doctors, they will tell you that one of the many blockages is that for the, the existing cohort of students graduating from medical school, guess what? they can't get jobs because there aren't enough places for them yeah. in the hospitals. Yeah. So they're going to double the number of medical students. I, have, I haven't read this plan, in fairness, so it may be buried in there somewhere. But it's all very well doubling the number of medical students, but you've got to be able to employ them as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, and no. then when, you, when you've employed them, you've got to keep them. And that means, as in Ireland, uh, creating the conditions that mean they don't all bugger off to Australia. That means, quite frankly, amongst many things, paying them more, reducing their hours and all that good stuff. And I doubt very much if paying these people a lot more is their front and centre of this plan. But as I say, I haven't read it. So I have deep and profound scepticism. Chris, you, you were talking there about the stuff that Adam Toos was writing about and how, you know, do they not get it? Have they learned nothing from the last 13 or 14 years? The, you know, the impact of growing inequality, et cetera, et cetera. Michael McGrath obviously gets it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Oh, that's interesting. Why do you say that? Well, what he's saying last night, he basically, you know, he said they have a broader, government has a broader remit to look after people. One way of looking after people is put more money into their pocket through lower taxes. And you, so that that gets it, okay? Mm. He, he's not overly concerned, I think, about overheating the economy. He wants to address these problems, make life better for people. The other issue you mentioned, what Michael McGrath should say to these people is, Go away, get out, pay my pay your workers more. Mm. Okay, and that's fine for the multinational sector. Mm. But ninety-nine they're the ones that do are, most of the bleating. Ninety-nine point one percent of businesses in this country are SME. They employ less than two hundred and fifty people. Sixty-five percent of business employment is provided by the SME sector. So the SME sector is an incredibly important part of the economy, in my view, too often ignored by policymakers. But the SME sector Typically, and I can't generalize here because the SME sector, I'm in the SME sector, my local coffee shop, uh, you know, manufacturing businesses, it's, it's very, very diverse. But one of the typical characteristics of the SME sector is definitely, you know, tight margins. They are 
challenging businesses, very competitive input costs, regulation are all significant burdens. And many of those businesses actually are really good at doing what they do, producing a good or a service. They're a lot less good at um, you know, financial management, at HR management, at trying to grow market innovation, et cetera, et cetera. They just don't have the resources. A lot of them, I'm generalizing, to invest in all of these skills. So SME is a tough environment. And if you just continue to see wages rise in the multinational sector, as you suggest, it is going to make it more difficult for SMEs to hire workers. I take all of your points, and I think they are very well made. And I would say that somehow or other, SMEs have got to be made more productive, more efficient. I take your point that many of them already are. Going back to the macro point, so this is a generalization, which doesn't apply to every single firm in the SME sector. Ireland's strength is the way in which it does redistribution, the way its tax and welfare system produces one of the most equal economies in the OECD. It does Scandinavian style, indeed, in some cases, better than some Scandinavian countries style redistribution from the rich to the poor. A lot of Lefties don't like me when I say that, but that is what the data explicitly, and in my opinion, unambiguously says. Ireland does redistribution incredibly well. That's the flip side to your high taxes, Jim. You've got a lot of tax revenues to redistribute. The dark side of that, Jim, is the need to do that redistribution is incredibly high in Ireland because at the market level, what we call pre-redistribution, there is a lot of inequality. And that's because there's a lot of low paid jobs in Ireland. And that's because a lot of companies in Ireland, not all, aren't as efficient or as productive as they could be. They're not as good. They're not as good as other companies in other parts of Ireland or in other parts of the world of getting the most out of their workforce. And so methods have to be found, carrots and sticks, to, to improve the efficiency of the of the pre-redistribution sector. Because if you once you do that, that once you improve the productivity stroke efficiency pre-redistribution, that means that the need for redistribution starts to go away because your your wages rise with your productivity. That's the theory anyway, and I know it doesn't always work in practice and that might sound terribly naive, but that's the that's what you've got to strive towards. And there are various mechanisms in which you can think about trying to do that. Running your economy hot is one way, and the US is achieving falling inequality in that way. And putting in support structures for SME sectors, this is the carrot, is, is, is another way. And I don't think they do receive enough support in, in Ireland and enough thought is given to how um, the, the business environment provided by the state and semi-state organisations can help SMEs to get both more productive and bigger. But Chris, people like Neil Macdonald, the head of ISME, whom we've had on the pod in the past couple of years ago at this stage, but Neil is constantly trying to push government to implement policies and provide support to try and boost the productivity performance of the SME sector here because um, OECD studies have shown just how lagging productivity in the SME sector typically is. And, And there is a recognition that the nature of a lot of these SMEs you know, militates against strong productivity growth. But, you know, there, there are people out there who get it, who recognize what small businesses need in order to boost productivity. And, and that's where the role of government is absolutely instrumental. Chris, 
there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about this morning. I think China is really interesting at the moment. The German Court of Auditors are talking about the EU fiscal rules, the GDP data in the United Kingdom this morning. There's loads of stuff we need to get to, but we're running out of time. So I wanted to bring you into the RTE story. Um, it's been quite extraordinary. I think for seven days at this stage, uh, despite what was going on in Ukraine, um, particularly last weekend, RTE story has dominated every news headline here. It's getting more news coverage, particularly from RTE itself, than any other issue. Um, government must be delighted in a sense because it takes the heat off of um, the other challenges in the economy, like the housing market and, and the health service and so on. And I, I see it's been covered extensively by the BBC, for example. So as somebody sitting um, in a plush office in Cardiff, how do you see it, Chris? Uh, I don't know about plush. Media like nothing better than writing stories and broadcasting stories about the media. And so it's a bit incestuous. It's a bit self-absorbed, in my opinion. And I wonder, beyond the headlines of the first few days, which I think, because of the personalities involved, there would have been lots of popular interest in it. I wonder how much interest there is to sustain five days of these kinds of headlines. As I say... I think there is an element of self-absorption when you get the Irish Times wall-to-wall coverage of what is happening at RTE. Nevertheless, there clearly is interest. There's, there's a lot of quite proper public interest in this, and it raises all sorts of issues. It's not just about the tabloid headlines about Ryan Tuberty's pay, slush funds, and all that other stuff that we see. It raises quite general questions about how do you set public sector pay where there is no obvious where there are no obvious market mechanisms of supply and demand for labour. It raises, I think, very deep questions about governance of any organisation, not least RTE. It provides you an illustration of what happens when you have very poor governance. I think we can raise all sorts of questions about what we mean by governance, and that, I think, in itself would make an interesting podcast. It's a subject very dear to my heart. Having worked in organizations that were well governed and having worked in loads of organizations that were appallingly governed. I think it must be a function of old age that you get more and more interested in these sorts of questions as you grow older. And living in a country called the United Kingdom that has had appalling governance at a government level for so long now, we are now living with the national consequences here. So lots and lots of different examples of what uh, good governance looks like what bad governance looks like. And I think that, you know, one could write a book on governance, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Uh, in term, and also that brings you into questions of leadership. It brings you into questions of culture, a corporate culture, which is always uh, connected to leadership, which is always connected to governance and all these sorts of issues. So I think there are, there's already, and there will be a lot more vacancies at, at RTE, um, I don't expect anybody to come knocking on my door for, for any of those. But the specific question of pay, which is what something an economist could answer, I think is really interesting. Because how do you set somebody like Ryan Tuberty's pay? Because it's not like Gary Lineker's pay on the BBC or Graham Norton's pay across various media channels. Because here in the UK, we're big enough to always enable the celebrity, the star presenter to say, well, if you don't pay me, half a million pounds a year, I'm going to work for the for the people down the road. That's less true in Ireland. It's not completely untrue. I know there is some competition for talent, 
But the only sanction that somebody like Ryan Tuberty would have had, I, I would guess, is that if you don't pay me this amount of money, I'm going to go fishing. I'm not going to do anything else, or I'm going to accept. Uh, I'm going to going to just make a different lifestyle choice. Maybe he did have offers from overseas. I don't know. So how do you set star pay in this kind of environment? Um, it's very tricky. I suspect they employed somebody called a remuneration consultant, and they do exist, believe it or not. Very highly paid, very costly remuneration consultants to come in and say, well, the global market for talent is by definition a global market. And they would have said, based on what people like this are paid in London, Paris, New York, and all the rest of it, this is what you should pay them. And I think they probably, I don't know, they probably did something like that. They could have just stuck their finger in the air and compared the salaries to Graham Norton's inappropriately. Um, I suspect in these organizations, I again, I don't know, but I have seen this so many times in firms that I've worked for, um, a big boss pays an employee a huge amount of money and it looks very mysterious until you realize that the big boss then goes to their boss and says, I can't have somebody working for me that is paid more than me. And so there are all of these driving forces going on and they are some of them are terrible driving forces. And that brings you back to the question of governance. If it's, a, if it's a, an appallingly governed organization that has peculiar governance structures, these sorts of things get out of hand very very quickly. And I suspect without knowing that this is what happened at poorly governed RTE. Uh, yeah, there's definitely huge governance issues. But in terms of what these top presenters are paid um, for an organization like RTE, where uh, there's public funding, um, we, we pay tele the RTE uh, license, but also commercial income is incredibly important. I, I think RTE would argue that for people like Ryan Tuberty, uh, one of the key ways of measuring his worth is through advertising. And uh, apparently, well, I think The Late Late Show, which I haven't watched in many, many years. I, I, I like Pat Kenny on it, I have to say. But anyway, I haven't watched The Late Late Show in many, many years. Uh, apparently, it's still a very popular, highly watched show that commercial sponsors are very interested in. So as a consequence of that, I suspect there is pressure to pay if the commercial sponsors like a presenter, there is pressure to make sure that that presenter is looked after. There, there is that aspect. But I, I think the damage that has been done to the credibility of RTE and its presenters is incalculable at this stage. You know, I can hear RTE presenters taking politicians through the ringer. And I can see politicians turn around and say, well, listen, take a look at your own house before you start throwing stones at government or whatever. There's a serious, serious compromising of the credibility of the organization now. And you, you just wonder, can it really ever come back from this? It can, I think. All organizations can make a comeback, but you have to be very hard-headed about it now. And I've seen this in business. Um, it's not easy. I'm not suggesting for a second that when an organization is on its knees, in danger of failing in a corporate sense, you know, loss-making institutions need to be turned around and you need to do a number of things. And first of all, it's always horses for courses. There's no one governance structure that one size fits all. It's always has to suit the organization. And that, this is where it becomes very subjective rather than objective. And again, as I say, I sometimes think I could write a book about this, but one of the things that I do think applies to all organizations, if you have an organization that has a bad culture, by bad, I don't necessarily mean moral or ethic, but just one that has led to it being in lots of trouble. Um, if you have a bad culture, it is very hard to change the culture of an organization 
without wholesale change of people. Um, because culture is something that, in a weird way, permeates the fabric of an organization, and one generation of employees seems to inherit culture from the last. So you need, I think, to clean the stables and to get a new group of senior executives and probably junior executives in there as well, all with very, very clear, consistent, agreed lines and parameters of the governance structure of RTE, what it's there for, what it's not there for, and the way in which they do things. The final thing I'd say, moving off my high horse, is that it's from Watergate to every other scandal we've ever seen politically, commercially, in, in history. Isn't it, Jim, always the cover-up that gets you rather than the crime? It certainly is, yeah. It's, here we go again. Yeah, here we go again, absolutely. And uh, I, I suspect we're going to hear a lot more cover-up um, emerge over the coming days and weeks as well. Listen, Chris, it has been great talking to you again. Um, have a good weekend. And uh, I look forward to touching base next week. Likewise, Jim. Thanks a lot, mate. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 